I'm going to invite you to stand as we read scripture together. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 1, and it's found in your bulletin and also the very beginning of your Bible. We're going to read verse 1 and then jump down to read verses 26 to 31. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed for its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Lord, help us to tremble before your word this morning. We acknowledge, Lord, that your word stands over us, and we stand under it. So I pray that we would approach your word, Lord, with submission, and with reverence, with awe, with fear even this morning, eager to hear what you have spoken, eager to conform our lives to it, eager to obey. Holy Spirit, empower the preaching of your word, empower our listening to it. In these next minutes together, I ask this for your glory, for the sake of your kingdom here among us. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are now week three of our series, our new sermon series, You Are Here, Finding Your Place in the Biggest Story Ever Told. And... Um, so this is a, a 32-week journey that we're going on that, that if you have not heard about this, I'd encourage you to go on our website and you can listen to or read so far where we've been. But in this series, we're exploring the fact that the Bible is one story, that the main character of that story is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we today are a part of that story still going on. So last week, we considered the, what we could call the prologue to this story, the fact that there's a backstory. There's always a backstory. And last week, we considered everything that was going on before the beginning of the story. We considered how God is a trinity who has existed forever in perfect relationship of love. 
And we saw the incredible truth that this whole story that we are a part of, this whole plan of redemption is all planned out, was all planned out by this Trinitarian God before time began. And that it is all part of one big gift of love from God the Father to God the Son and then back from God the Son to the Father. God created us and chose us and gave us grace so that we will bring glory to Jesus by loving him forever with the very same love that the Father has for him. That's what we explored last week, that our destiny is to forever love Jesus with the very same love that the Father has loved him with for all of eternity. And this plan was all laid out from before the very beginning. Then there was a beginning, and that's where we are today. We are considering the beginning of the story. With promises made, his people chosen, the plan of redemption already laid out, God put this plan into action and began to tell the story, just like we read in this very first verse of the very first book of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The story begins with creation, with God making everything that we see. Maybe you've read Genesis 1-1 so many times. Maybe you've argued about it with other people so many times that you're used to it. But one of the things I want us to do this morning is just take in, again, for the first, almost as if for the first time, how significant, how important, how magnificent this verse in Scripture is. Just think about what it's telling us. God, the God of redemption, the God who saves us, the God who's given us grace, the God who communicates to us in the Bible, the God who hears our prayers, is the same person who made the universe. God is not just one actor on the stage of space and time. God built the stage. God owns the stage. This all belongs to him because he made it. Throughout the Old Testament, we see repeatedly God establishing his identity in contrast to all the other false gods who were just minor players on the stage of space and time. And how God repeatedly established his identity as the God, the creator of heaven and earth. The fact that he made it all is one of the most important things that we can understand about him because he is unparalleled by any other God. There, is, there are no rivals to him. No one can come close to his power because he made everything other than himself. That's why in the book of Acts, we saw this in the What is the Gospel series. The fact that when the Apostle Paul was explaining the gospel to people who didn't know the Bible, where did he start all the time? He started with creation, establishing God's identity as the one who made everything. It's as if he was saying to everyone, you know, this world that you're living in, this food that you're eating, that air that you're breathing, this body that you've been given, it was all made by somebody. And so it belongs to him. And so you owe everything to him. And so now let me tell you about that somebody. Psalm 24 verse 1 sums it up when it says, 
The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. Have you ever had that experience where you found something and you didn't think it belonged to anybody, so you started to use it, and then you found out, oops, this actually does belong to somebody else? That's a little bit of what the Apostle Paul does as he preaches the gospel in the book of Acts. He's making people come to that oops moment, realizing this all belongs to the person who made it, and I have a responsibility to him. This made me think when when Curtis and I were camping with the young adults back in August, we we set up camp on some crown land just just north of of the Torch River here, 20 minutes north of town. And we were talking about the fact that this parcel of land, what we call crown land, if you look up on ISC on land titles, it is actually owned by Her Majesty the Queen. That's who owns the title to all of the crown land. It belongs to her. As citizens of Canada, we're allowed to use it, but it belongs to somebody else. And what Genesis 1.1 suggests and tells us and the rest of scripture fleshes out is that all of planet earth is crown land title held by his majesty, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he lets us use it, but it belongs to him. And so that means we each have a deep obligation to him because everything we have is borrowed. So let's ask the question, why did God create this universe? Why did, why did he make it? The answer shouldn't surprise us given what we saw last week. God made the heavens, God made the earth, God made us for his glory. Right? Romans eleven thirty six, one of the most important verses in scripture says, from him, through him, and to him are all things. So this universe is from God, it happens through God, it's sustained right now at this moment, we're breathing, the sun's in the sky, everything is happening through the power of God and it's all to God, which means for his glory. Shouldn't surprise us that the creation is for God's glory. And in a very specific way, when, when an artist makes something that's, that's spectacular, that, that thing that the artist made reflects the glory and the creativity of that artist. And creation does this for God in such astounding ways, like we sang about this morning. Romans 1 tells us this when it says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That's Romans 1 verse 20. Everywhere we look, everybody, whether they acknowledge it or not, is clearly perceiving the invisible attributes of the majestic God who made everything that we can see. You don't need to be a scientist to know that a a, a majestic God created this universe that we've made. You just need to watch the sunrise. You just need to look around you. We all know that. We all see that. And this is on purpose. God made the universe to preach about himself. Psalm 19, verse 1 to 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Anyone see the moon last night? It rose just huge and amazing. That's telling us something. It's communicating knowledge to us. We should take Note and listen to the preaching of creation that's going on around us. 
Like we sang this morning, creation sings the Father's song. While I was on vacation this summer, I watched some worship DVDs with, with my sons. These worship DVDs were part of a worship series made by the BBC called Blue Planet. Maybe you're thinking, oh man, you're confused. Those are nature documentaries. Those aren't worship DVDs. And I would argue, no, that, that, that those, there's no difference between a nature documentary and a worship production because we can't help, we shouldn't be able to help worshiping God as we see all of the things that he's made, the sheer creativity and the power of God and the things that he thought up. It's astounding. And again, we don't have to be scientists to see this. But, but the amazing thing is that if we do look a little bit deeper at creation through the lens of science, where we discover just more and more and more evidence of, of a majestic, powerful, creative God who made all of this. God has created a universe that is incredibly complex and beautifully structured. I wish we could spend a whole morning talking about this. About the fact that underneath all of the physical laws of our universe is a, a precise mathematical system, right? The fact that physics and math are almost the same thing when you boil it down to it. And it didn't have to be that way, but God made a universe that was just incredibly logical and orderly, just like himself, I wish we could talk about all the laws and the constants that are, are fine-tuned in incredibly specific ways. Think about the fact that in every single one of the trillions of cells in your body, you have, they, scientists estimate, some, some estimate 20 gigabytes, some 50, some 100 gigabytes of precisely coded information in your DNA in every single one of the trillions of cells. You are a walking supercomputer that the world has never even seen. You think of what's going on right now in science as scientists are trying to figure out artificial intelligence and all this kind of stuff, putting billions of dollars to try and make computers even come close to the stuff that we are born with. I mean, just look, hold up your hand, and you can just make it do that just by itself. Our hands are strong. We're able to lift stuff, and yet they're tender. We're able to, you know, pet animals and feel their hair. We, just the things that, that God designed and, and that humans can't, we, we work and work, and we can just come a little bit close. And God made all of this, and he just gave it to us for free. We get to enjoy this that world that he made. Creation sings the Father's song. Whether you look up with a telescope, whether you look down with a microscope, just look around you with your own two eyes. The universe is preaching to us nonstop about the glory of the one who made it. So we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning zooming in on the creation of a very specific part of creation, the creation of man humanity, Adam and Eve. Genesis 1 tells us that after making everything and declaring it to be good, God fashioned what is really pictured as the capstone of his creation, the, the, the finishing touch, the masterpiece at the, at, the, at the end of the project. In verse 26 and 27 that we read earlier, then God said, this is Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then further down a little bit. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Oh, there's so much in these verses that we could spend time on this morning. We could spend weeks 
I want this, I want to do a series now on creation, and we should we should do that sometime. But for our purpose this morning, we're going to focus in on three aspects of the creation of Adam and Eve, because in the scope of this series. Adam is a very, very crucial character. He's going to come up again and again throughout this series. So that's why as we think about creation, we're, we're zeroing in on, on Adam and Eve, and even more specifically, Adam, because the things we learn, we're going to need to know further on down the line. The first thing that we should see here as we look at these three important things is that Adam and Eve were created in God's image after his likeness. So this whole universe displays God's glory, but, but in a very unique way, humans, Adam and Eve, people, us, were made to reflect God's glory by being like him in an absolutely unique way. We're made in his image. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean that you are made in God's image? That you're like God. In what way? We know that God doesn't have a body, so it doesn't mean that we look like him physically. What does it mean? Well, something that's been, been a really neat discovery for me in the past two, three years is that this language of being made in God's image, in his likeness, this language would actually have been very familiar to the, to the original readers of Genesis, right? So who are the original readers of Genesis? They were the children of Israel who had come out of Egypt. And Moses, as the author or the editor, the compiler, the one who brought this material together and gave it to the people, the children of, of Israel coming out of Egypt, their background was Egypt and all the th- thinking and philosophies and so on of of Egypt. And what's very interesting is that the idea of being made in the image of a god was actually a familiar concept coming out of the land of Egypt. The, they believed in Egypt that the pharaohs were the image, or what they would call a living statue, right? Image, statue, a living statue of one of their gods. And what made the Pharaoh an image of their God wasn't his physical appearance, because a, a male Pharaoh could be an image of a female goddess. So it wasn't, it wasn't the way that they looked. It had to do with their behavior and their character. The, the Pharaoh, they believed, reflected the character of one of the gods or goddesses. And he was their image. And, and now get this, this is really important. They believe that as the image of their God, the Pharaoh represented that God here on earth. He represented their authority here. The pharaohs were, as the image of God, of the small g God, were the representatives of that God here on earth. So the pharaohs believed this about themselves. But then what's neat to see is how the pharaohs went a step further by actually doing this for themselves. The pharaohs would make images of themselves to represent their rulership and authority over other places. So there's an example of one of the pharaohs, Ramesses II, who conquered a whole bunch of territory all the way up to modern-day Lebanon, right? So that's, that's far away from Egypt. And so how is the pharaoh going to show that he's the king over that land when he can't actually be there to enforce his rule? Well, what he did is he made an image of himself. He carved a statue, like kind of like a, a, a Mount Rushmore in the side of a rock. And his image looking out over that land represented the fact that Pharaoh was king over that area and his image represented him there. 
extended his authority over that place. So you see what's going on, whether it's the gods making a pharaoh or pharaoh making a statue. Being in the image of someone else means that you are like them and you represent them in a different place. So, so this is what they understood. So when Moses writes here that God made the earth and then created Adam and Eve in his image, they would have understood what this means. They would have understood that, first of all, it meant that Adam and Eve, humans, you and me, we're like God in some important ways. And we're going to talk later on about what ways those are. It's not how we look. It's how we behave. It's some of our characteristics. It has to do, we're going to learn about things like creativity and order and, and so on. And second, they would have understood what this is saying. Is that, listen carefully here, Adam and Eve were created to represent God's rule here on earth as they ruled under his authority. To be in the image of God meant that Adam and Eve were to function as a king and a queen, ruling under the authority of a great heavenly emperor. And you don't have to know all that stuff about Egypt to get this. We just have to look at the text. Look, notice how verse 26 says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And what's the very next thing say? And let them have dominion. So in, in the way that the Hebrew language works, when you, you say the same thing twice very often, you'll say it one way and you'll say it another way. He's not changing the subject here. Being made in God's image and having dominion are not two different ideas. They're, they're, they're describing the same thing in, in two different ways. Being God's image means having dominion here on earth, ruling here on earth as God's representative. And that's why God gave Adam and Eve a royal mission in verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, right? Those are kingly words. Adam and Eve were created to rule over this world as God's representatives, representing his authority here. Think of it, this doesn't really work, but think of it almost like the lieutenant governor in Canada representing the authority of the queen here. And I, and I know that's weak, but it gives a little bit of a sense of what this means. So, that's number one thing that we're seeing about Adam and Eve. They were created to rule as a king and queen here on earth as God's representatives. Now, there's a second really important angle, especially particularly for Adam in particular. In addition to being a king, one of the things we're going to see here is that Adam was created to also be a priest. And if you turn over to chapter 2, if you have your Bible in Genesis, we didn't read this earlier, but if you turn over to chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 8 to 15. Genesis 2, verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. 
Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Once again, as we think about this passage, what we need to think about is how would the very first readers of this passage, right? The children of Israel coming up out of Egypt in the desert, very likely, how would they have read and understood these words? And this, this might surprise us this morning, but as they would have read this passage, they would have understood this passage describing the Garden of Eden to be full of imagery of the tabernacle. You know the tabernacle, right? The the tent, the, the, the portable temple that God commanded the children of Israel to build in the desert, where he would come and meet with them, commune with them, where the priests would serve him. And this description of Eden is just full of connections to the tabernacle. It's right there, for example, in the parallel between the tree of life in the center of the garden and the golden lampstand in the center of the tabernacle, which represents that. And they would have seen a connection between there. It's, there's a connection in the way that, you ever wonder, why does Moses draw attention to the first branch of the river coming out of Eden and how it flowed through a land full of gold, bdellium, and onyx stone? Well, those were all materials that God told them to use in the construction of the tabernacle. When it says that God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it, the only other time in the writings of Moses where those two words come together, they come together to describe the work of the Levitical priests in working and keeping the tabernacle where they serve the Lord. So those are words associated with the work of a priest. Later on in Genesis chapter 3, it talks about God coming to walk with Adam in the garden. And that word, walk, is the exact same Hebrew word that's used later on to talk about God's presence in the tabernacle. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, what was it guarded by? Two angels, just like the two angels protecting the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. There's, there's more. We could go on from here, but I... I Decided to stop there. But biblical scholars recently have, have been reading this and understanding that this is full of deliberate references between Eden and the tabernacle. Or what we could actually say, what would be more accurate, is that the tabernacle is full of references to Eden. The tabernacle was designed to mimic and to almost be a reflection of Eden. And what this points to is Adam's role as a priest, just like the Levites put in the tabernacle to work it and to keep it, to serve God, to commune with God, to represent God. So Adam was put in Eden to work it and to keep it, to walk with God, to serve him and to represent him. So the Israelites and today biblical scholars and us should recognize strong notes here that Adam, part of his role was to serve as a priest. There's a third and there's a final element here to God's creation of Adam in particular. And you can get this if you look at Genesis 2, verses 16 to 17. 
which I'm going to sum up here. I'm assuming we're familiar with this. I'd encourage you to go home and read this, though. But in verses 16, 17, chapter 2, it's just Adam. Eve hasn't been created yet. And God comes to Adam and tells him that he can't eat from certain trees in the garden. Don't eat from the tree of life. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God speaks to Adam. He gives Adam his word. This is before Eve was created. So then Eve was created. And Eve had to know what she could and could not eat. So who do you think told her? Adam. What do you call someone who hears from God and then shares that with somebody else? A prophet. So what we see here is Adam fulfilling the function of a prophet, receiving the word of God and then communicating that to others. So Adam here in Genesis 1 and 2 is pictured as a king, a priest, and a prophet. Do you catch that? Those are the three offices, right? Those are the three offices that come up later in the nation of Israel. Uh, there was a king and a priest and a prophet who were each anointed by God for that ministry. And these are the three offices that come together in Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king. And that shouldn't surprise us because who is Jesus? He is the last Adam. And I got to stop myself there because there's so much more I want to say about that that we have to save for later on in this series. And just mentioning that, I want to be honest here, this was a tough message to figure out what to do with. Because so much, so much, we, we, what we've talked about here, right? We, we know God created it. God created the universe. God created Adam, made him a king and a priest and a prophet. And there's so many connections that come out of that for us in our lives today. But it's all stuff that we have to deal with further down the line in this series. But this morning, as as I've thought about it, without diving into the rest of the series, I think we can take home some important truths from, from what we've, just what we've seen so far this morning. As we've seen, God created this world for his glory. He owns it, what he created Adam and Eve for. And there actually was more than I realized as I thought about it. So I'm going to highlight for us here five ways for us to take home the truth of just what we've seen so far this morning and apply it to our lives. Five ways to apply this to our lives. The first way to apply this truth to our lives is just to celebrate the fact that we were made in the image of God. We were created to be like God. And what do we read about God in, in Genesis chapter one? We read that God is creative. He makes things. He creates things. God is orderly, right? He, he brings order out of chaos. He separates light from dark and water from land. And, 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 and God, is, God is structured and, again, brings, brings order out of chaos. And we were created to be like God. So it shouldn't surprise us when we see those same attributes, those same instincts in us. I see the image of God in my two sons. They can't not create things. Whether they're in the backyard playing with dirt or whether they're playing with Lego or they got paper and crayons, that's what they do. They make stuff. They create things. That's the image of God in them. 
That's maybe better to say that's a sign that they were made in the image of God. And it doesn't stop when we grow up, right? Each of us here, in one way or another, shows that we were made in the image of God as we build things and fix things and create things and plant things and organize things and clean things and get satisfaction out of it. That feeling that you get after a job well done, that feeling you get looking at a well-mowed lawn or a well-painted wall or a well-drawn picture or whatever, whatever your thing is, that sense of satisfaction, that's a sign that you were made to be like God who did his work and surveyed it and said, it is very good. We were made in the image of God. There's a few reasons why it's important for us to celebrate this, but one of them is the fact that we are so often told today that humans are the problem with our planet. We're so often told today that human creativity, human industry has wrecked things and that our planet would be better off without us, right? I'm sure you've heard that. Now it's true, humans have done some really nasty things to this planet we're doing some really nasty things to this planet today, and there's no excuse for that. But it doesn't erase the fact that God made us in his image. God built us with this drive to create and to bring order and to, to invent things. And the reason is that God created a planet that needs us to do that. God did not design our world to work best without us. That's what Genesis 1 shows us. Think about the fact, Genesis 2, even the Garden of Eden that God made perfect needed Adam to work it and to keep it. Our, our planet does not operate best without us. Amy and I learned that lesson this summer as we planted our first garden. Those of you who garden, you know this. Does your garden work best when you throw some seeds in the ground and just let whatever happen happen? Of course not. We were blown away over and over again this summer by how much how much specific knowledge it takes to have a garden grow really well. Just knowing all these things, that these plants work better over here and with this, I mean, all this stuff. Those of you who garden, you, you know it all. Just wrecked our minds over and over again this summer. And it's so obvious that God designed these things. God designed tomatoes to grow best under the care of a watchful, careful, wise human. Right? God did not design them best to grow on their own. And it goes for the rest of this world. God designed it to operate best under our care. So within biblical parameters, we got to celebrate this. We should celebrate human accomplishment. We should celebrate things like art and culture. We should celebrate engineering and technology. We should celebrate the way that farmers have figured out how to get such incredible yields out of a piece of land. We should celebrate the fact that we have figured out how to take sand and carve it into microchips and melt it into glass and create marvels like the iPhone out of sand. Do you know what this is? This is us doing what God created us to do, cultivating and subduing and having dominion over this world. If you have an Android, it doesn't count, by the way. But this is the image of God. And so, as we saw back in June, these are all the things that we're going to get to do in fuller and deeper and richer ways on the new earth for the glory of Jesus forever. So, this is just our first take-home point today. 
within biblical parameters, we should celebrate the image of God. A second truth that's very closely connected to the first one is that we should celebrate work. Because here's another angle on everything I've just described, about creating and organizing, all that. There's a word for that. Work. And I hope you notice that even in the Garden of Eden, before sin, Adam and Eve had work to do. God put them in the garden to work it and to keep it. So again, contrary to all the messages we're told in our culture today, work is not a necessary evil that we just try and get out of the way as soon as we can so we can actually enjoy our real life. Work is a part of what it means to be human. God created us to work, and in the new heavens and the new earth, we are going to work. That's all I'm going to say about that now, because we've got a whole sermon on work coming in the second half of the series. So I just wanted to plant those seeds so you can chew on them for a few months, and we'll be talking about that in January, I think. Third truth that we should take home from today is we should celebrate that we were created for relationship with God. We were created to commune with God. We were created to walk with God. We were created to need God's word. Adam was a priest and a prophet. He needed all of those. That's what God made him for. So as we think about some of the things that we talk about here at church, you know, things like reading your Bible throughout the week, things like praying, things like being in church as often as you can. These aren't just rules that we tack on to wreck our life. These are part of what it means to be human. We were created to relate to God, to know God. So knowing that, that should cause us to be very intentional with our relationship with God, very intentional with our times in his word and in prayer and with other people like this. Number four, we should celebrate that we were made male and female. We should celebrate the fact that Adam and Eve were created equal in the image of God, but with different roles and different functions. We saw a little bit of this today in our passage. God made Adam first and gave him a mission, gave him a job. And God made Eve second to help him with that mission because he couldn't do it alone. And we should not be embarrassed about that because our culture tells us we should. Our culture should be embarrassed, not us. God made us different. And science confirms this. Biology confirms this. Everything shows that men and women are not the same. And that's good. That's a part of God's good creation. And I want to talk here specifically about something that, again, we should not be embarrassed to discuss. The fact that Adam, as a man, had the unique responsibility of taking leadership to make sure that God's mission was fulfilled. God made him first, and it was up to Adam to share and to tell Eve what God had told him and to take the lead in making sure that things happened the way they were supposed to. 
And this is a pattern that extends throughout the rest of the Bible. If you read passages like Ephesians 5 or 1 Timothy chapter 2, you can't miss the fact that particularly we can talk specifically in the home and in the church, God expects men to carry the primary responsibilities for leadership, for protection, and for provision. And we should not cower before a powerful, radically feminized culture and try to hide this truth in our back pockets. We should celebrate this. Men, please hear me today. I'm gonna talk to you right now. You are not just a human. You are not just a person. You are a man. And that is nothing to be ashamed of. It is good that you are a man. And as a man, God has expectations of you, specific, unique expectations of you. God expects you to shoulder the heavy burdens. God expects you to use your strength to protect and to nurture those around you. God expects you to take responsibility for yourself and for those around you. God expects you to lead. God expects you to take the initiative in fulfilling the mission that he's given us to fulfill. But just like Adam in in the next chapter, which we're going to look at next week, far too many men, far too many Christian men today are content to just fade into the background while others around us, especially the women around us, take the full brunt of Satan's attacks and have to pick up the heavy loads that we are not carrying. Far too many Christian men today are content to let other people lead while they play around with hobbies and sports and video games and pornography. So men of Emmanuel Baptist Church, let me ask you, what are you doing to take the initiative in fulfilling God's mission for your life, for your family, for your church? What are the heavy loads that you're carrying so that others don't need to? What are you doing to protect the weak? What are the examples that you're setting to those that are looking up to you? Because they are looking up to you and you are setting an example. The only question is what kind of example? Men, where are you leading? Men, if you don't have answers to those questions, don't rest until you find them, please. Choose to start somewhere. Choose to start somewhere even today to begin to be the kind of man that you and your God and your family and your church and your world needs you to be. Ladies, I hope you don't feel left out by this discussion. There's so much that I could say to you as well. Your part in the biggest story ever told is massive and crucial. But I hope, ladies, you know that everything that I just said to the men is actually for you. I have never met a woman who, if she was really honest, did not want the men in her life to really be men. And I think, ladies, if you're honest, your heart resonates when you turn to scripture and you see that you were designed to flourish under the sacrificial leadership of strong men who serve you 
by shouldering the heavy loads for you, by taking the bullets for you, and being what God called them to be so that you can be everything that God called you to be. Once again, I got to stop there this morning. This could be a whole series, and it should be someday. I hope we get to this sometime. But please hear this morning, we should celebrate the fact that God made us male and female in his image with all of the things that are the same and all of the glorious differences. Finally, number five, a word to all of us. We should celebrate the fact that all of this is about Jesus. And again, there's so much we can't say because it's all coming further down in this series. But we know as we hear all of this this morning that Adam failed And we have all failed. None of us in this room have done what we're supposed to do. None of us have worked and served God and served others and been a man or been a woman or whatever it is perfectly. None of us have represented God the way we're supposed to. There's only one man who's done that. The last Adam. Prophet, priest, and king. The one who died as our sacrifice to pay for all of those sins I just talked about. And the one who's working right now to bring us home to the new earth. We're going to get to work and walk with him just like we were made to back at the beginning. What we read here about the Garden of Eden and about the perfect creation before the fall is what Jesus is bringing us back to, but even better. So let's go out there this week and celebrate this. Let's go out there this week and live this. Let's go out with eyes wide open, seeing the glory of God around us and asking him to help us play the part in the story that he wants us to play. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing one last time here. Creation sings the Father's song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. We need it so desperately. Lord, help us to celebrate your truth this morning. Help us to celebrate your creation all around us, your creation of us. Father, help us to remember the things we've learned this morning and to to be determined this week, Lord, to take these things seriously. Whatever it is, wherever we need to start, Lord, please help us to do that. Help us to be the humans, to be the men and to be the women that you want us to be and that you're making us to be. ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory.